All right. So in this episode, I'm going to sort of string together a bunch of points that might sound random at first, and maybe a few of them will be, but I, I think they go together ultimately. I think they're going to blend together just enough to make some sense, and I'll talk about my own life a little bit and try to see how it fits into the so-called world of politics. My aim is to show how I am different from political labels, at least sometimes, and I hope to illustrate how abstraction and polarization go hand in hand by showing how I am a bit of a complex character, or at least more complex than any caricature. I want to show how flimsy political labels can be when paired when paired with a person's life and their personal experiences. And it's not just going to be about me, though. I'm going to also talk about another political figure. Uh, you might have heard of him, a guy named Barack Obama. And yes, I am actually going to defend Barack Obama on some basic level, as um, some of you might suspect. And uh, it's basically due to how he was dragged through the mud unfairly and some, well, in many instances during his presidency. So you can, you can call me someone on the left, on the right, in the center, because it's all relative. That's one of the points I'm making here. Even a label that seems fitting for me uh, to apply to myself might not be what someone else thinks should or would describe me. Despite how wacky and disturbing things can get, uh, with things like neo-fascism, which complicates the current situation in America. I think some elements of politics actually are common sense even today. And, you know, that it, it can come down to if a policy is just too much of a headache, it'll clearly be disliked by those it's giving a headache to. And... In addition to that, people should also ask, could this be something dangerous? And sure enough, of course, a lot of policies are potentially dangerous in one way or another. And it's not a personality insult necessarily, but a matter of what makes sense, what works, what is safe and effective. It doesn't always have to be about this personality trait or that. And oddly enough, it really does feel odd saying this, but I think I'm actually better qualified to talk about some of this stuff um, than some other overly career-minded political commentators out on the market today. You know, that sounds like I'm patting myself on the back pretty hard there. But my preference is basically to emphasize policy and philosophy over party and personality. And I guess this is almost starting to sound like a job application or something. But, you know, the, the point is, you know, the, the, the party stuff and the personality stuff, it's, it's, it's been leading people astray. It should be more about, you know, ideas and policies and plans and stuff like that. I'm not a political science professor. There was a time where I thought I wanted to be a journalist you know, more of a straightforward journalist, in addition to so many other things. But instead, I'm basically a part-time entertainment writer, which is a bit of a crossover into journalism in some ways. 
I know I sometimes bring up serious issues in my articles, but overall I'm still an outsider and still rooted in my working class origins. And uh, that's partly where some of my critiques of the system come from. Oddly enough, I do have insight into how the world of PR works because, you know, I'm directly involved to some degree in, you know, um, writing articles and whatnot. There is a, you know, a PR element to that in what I do. I understand better than some people how the framing of a topic matters. You know, I'm not trying to say that public relations or, you know, press contacts is always bad. I'm just talking about how when you write an article or really just present an idea overall in general, you're going to sort of manipulate uh, the perspectives of others by how you frame a topic. So I try not to cynically abuse my powers as a writer, but at the end of the day, there is an element of manipulation to everything that not only I do, but to what we all do. We're all manipulators to some extent, even if we're not masters at it. It's actually some part of our nature. And I wouldn't say it's all it's all bad. You know, you got to take the good with the bad. Some Some ways that we manipulate people are actually not only to our advantage, but to others' advantages. I, I also think we're all capable of potentially abusing our powers of persuasion and potentially to some unjust powers. In fact, that's a topic I'm interested in. Going back to my early days of learning about politics when I first had my sort of political origin story, it involved skepticism of authority basically from an anarchic perspective. See, my political awakening, so to speak, was basically when I learned of the relationship between Henry Ford and Adolf Hitler. So how could they have been allies? You know, that's the thought that was running through my head at the time when I first learned that. I had heard great things about Henry Ford being an industrial pioneer. He seemed to quintessentially represent the American business spirit. Hell, as I even stated on this podcast before, he even treated his workers pretty fairly, which was called Fordism, and it helped them stay loyal. In fact, it was it was so effective and powerful that people from different uh, political leanings sought to uh, understand how Ford did it. So the Soviet Union was actually, to some degree, you know... At, trying to uh, invite Ford Motor Company people over into the Soviet Union. And sure enough, some of them went there. And uh, basically, it, it was a part of the uh, nature of the Soviet Union's economy. They adopted some elements of Fordism and uh, probably more the propagandistic elements of it. Uh, um, but... I have read up on that, and it's, it's sort of an interesting topic. And anyway, I'm getting a little bit sidetracked. But basically, Henry Ford might have been seen as a capitalist at his best in some respects. You know, he was productive. He made a lot of money, treated his workers actually reasonably fairly, especially by the standards at the time. So how could he also be a capitalist 
at his worst by being a fan of Adolf Hitler. Like, according to a lot of narratives, that would be some sort of contradiction. But when I started thinking about it, I began drawing parallels between the Nazi death camps and assembly lines. And I started to ask, okay, to what, it, to what degree does industrial society function sort of like an assembly, assembly line with sort of an assembly line logic? Are we really being valued as human beings or as mere parts of a vast machine? And to what extent is the system anti-human, for lack of a better word? You know, these were all questions that were actually going through my dumb little teenage mind. And there are the, you know, questions that really should be asked more often. You know, people should be questioning the basic nature of the world around them. These are the types of questions that never occur to many people, though, even when sort of facing them. And here I was pondering them in high school. I realize, I realize that to a large degree, systems of authority require us to depersonalize each other. They render us into abstract entities while jarringly making the abstract belief systems that justify authority seem more real and important than the people involved. It's like a reversal of reality where organic living human beings are made into ghosts, ideas, statistics, and maybe at best emotional responses, while the system becomes more real than life itself. You know, it, it is what needs to be preserved rather than, you know, I guess, humanity. Now, over the years, I've become a sellout trader to any number of, I guess you could say, radical causes. I don't think I represent any anarchic observations well at all, but I still have them from time to time. And in a way, that's almost exactly the point I'm making. I'm human. I really just am trying to make something of myself in the random circumstances and bizarre culture that I grew up under. The idea that I'd perfectly represent anything, including even myself, is laughable. This is even more so when life and the universe are always changing, so I see little point in pretending I am some foremost expert on this and that. I just want to sometimes make sense, and in order to do that, I still feel obligated to debunk some nonsense and examine how people are responding to one another on ideologically polarized issues. I might say that some people threaten the nation's well-being, and it could technically be kind of right. But, you know, I, I have to ask, what do I mean when I say this nation anyway? You know, again, you have to cut to the core of these questions, which a lot of people just don't do. What is the concept of not only a nation, but, you know... It, a lot of words you could ask about, like, what is polarization and why might it be seen as a threat? Who might gain advantage from polarization or the divide and conquer elements of political systems? It seems like this could describe liberals and conservatives alike or left and right or whatever you want to call them to the extent that these labels are even useful uh, to me personally. And on that note, a 2012 Live Science article describes that 
media exaggerates the gulf between liberals and conservatives. Quote, these moral stereotype differences were exaggerations beyond even the most extreme partisans we could find. That was a quote by study researcher, researcher Jesse Graham, a psychologist at the University of Southern California. So what, what's, hap, what's happening in that quote is basically they're saying that a, a lot of what's happening now as far as like the partisan divide is just cartoonishly extreme. And I think you can find that online a lot of times you get conspiracy theory piled upon conspiracy theory. They, they abound, they're everywhere. And there is a lot of disturbing consensus on what used to be fringe issues that seem to dominate what is called the right wing. And you have these odd little mini paladins running around for a powerful cult leader with exotic hair and orange tinted makeup who uh, has a bunch of dumb catchphrases that he repeats over and over again to help sink his logic into people's brains and apparently possibly to help sink his 2024 presidency um, even before it ever has a chance to begin. Uh, but anyway, these weird polarization elements are ultimately backed by some powerful and wealthy interests, which is interesting because if you listen to their own conspiracy theories, they seem to be paranoid about a political system propped up by powerful and wealthy interests. And yes, sometimes it is some QAnon anti-Semitism kind of stuff. You know, it's, it's all a dangerous and revamped Red Scare type scenario or a witch hunt. And it's extra odd because they even think someone like Joe Biden is a communist. They hate and fear all Democrats. And they will tell you anything but far-right media is fake. You know, that's, that's really one of their core messages um, because that's really how cults operate. They say... We're the only arbiters or arbiters of truth. You know, anything that people outside of this group say, you know, that they're, they're going to be lies. And, uh, you know, a lot of this perhaps has origins in the so-called age of consensus, which was between 1945 and 1968. So I, I was reading up on this. There's historian Jason Kelleher's blog, and he said, consensus means agreement, and this was a time when many in the U.S. agreed on the status and role of their country as a dominant superpower, ready to protect and defend against its new, en its new main enemy, communism. So on the surface, that, you know, might not sound bad. I would say that authoritarian communism was, in many ways, a threat. So, you know... That's that's not really the point here. The point is everybody everybody was expected to be on the same page and any deviation was considered, you know, a potential threat. I don't think 100% that it was fundamentally a consensus period because obviously things changed, but dominant interests were simply more dominant and narratives and certain laws were tightly enforced at the time. You know, lots of specific cultural messaging was happening 
to create that sort of uh, social setting. Of course, any labor union activities at the time, and really in a lot of American history where I was considered communist, so to speak, and the capitalist overlords would try to beat them back one way or the other, either through propaganda or, you know, with an actual club. And even if the working class was really just trying to get a more fair and just system, uh, really, they could always just say, well, well, it's nothing but, you know, a communist threat. And it, 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 it's just very effective propaganda, even to this day. Then, you know, here's where my Obama pivot comes in. I'm switching gears here a little bit. When Obama became president, a lot of hatred and othering by so-called traditional Americans started to creep back into the right-wing conversation. Obama was treated as a secret Kenyan-born Muslim, but also an atheist. He was a communist, but also a, a Wall Street-backed elite. And to this day, such convoluted messaging dominates right-wing fears about Obama and so many others, because none of it really has to make sense. It can all be contradictory, a jumbled mess. It's all about rendering people into abstractions that you basically spit venom at. In this case, oddly enough, I end up weirdly defending Obama, who was a neoliberal with, in many cases, Republican-style policies and, uh, and all that kind of stuff. But still, the far right had to treat him as something other than what he was because he was obviously different in that one key way. Well, we all know what made him different. If he presented his birth certificate, which he did, someone could always just say it was fake. There was nothing on earth that could have made Obama a real American to some of these people because he played on the other sports team. He was the enemy to beat and nothing else. And of course, he has a certain quality that, uh, that people definitely did notice. So I, I suspect Obama himself had grown weary of the words first African-American president after eight years. But that label never was something to be proud of for some, not even for a second, is not even like a minor achievement. You know, they, they had to take it away from him. They couldn't even admit he was an American, for that matter. They also couldn't even celebrate that Osama bin Laden was killed during the Obama administration, something that a lot of these same people would have celebrated endlessly had it been George W. Bush or some other Republican who did it. There was nothing Obama could have done to impress some of these people. And, you know, that's just the way it was. They were heavily propagandized. They couldn't give him credit for anything. And even I, as somebody who would criticize Obama over various things, I'm still capable of at least giving him a little bit of credit here and there. You know, because it's, it's not just about fairness, it's also about, you know, being factual. So NPR notes that Obama said this at a press conference in uh, 2017. He said, we're going to have a woman president, we're going, we're going to have a Latino president, and, and we'll have a Jewish president, a Hindu president. You know, who knows who we're going to have? I suspect we'll 
have a whole bunch of mixed up presidents at some point that nobody really knows what to call them. Well, it turns out that some people call them anything they want, regardless of their actual background, because they are easily transformed into abstract entities, things, beliefs, and malleable little labels that can be shifted around on a whim. And that's why people are so easily manipulated. Half the time, they seem to do the job themselves. Give them slight hints at a conspiracy theory and they'll fill in the blanks. In a way, incomplete information is almost the point. You control your own universe, and if someone comes along and exploits your own false beliefs and further manip manipulates the narrative, so you give them money and power and target groups they don't like, then you have done your job as a good patriotic American. Ooh, how fancy. Well, anyway, that's really all I have to say about that for the time being, and uh, hopefully you found a good point or two in there somewhere. And uh, yeah, you can you can always listen to additional episodes. Granted, sometimes I do repeat some of these points, you know, but you can at least give me credit for occasionally scrambling up the words in a different way, even if I do sometimes, you know, say something I've said before. So anyway, on that note, you can have a wonderful day. All right. Bye-bye.